0: welcome to the fbh podcast for more information about our church feel free to visit www.fbhamford.org we're in mark chapter 13 and we're going to try to get through the entire thing of mark chapter 13 um, but just know it's a uh, it's a meaty passage it's a different type of passage it's a prophetic passage and so what that means is that we're going to do our best to kind of try to dissect it and pull apart and apply what it is that, uh, that we believe um, it, uh, it says for life. So instead of the walking verse by verse through all of Mark 13, we're going to try to kind of hit the high points. We're going to hit a 30,000 foot view of the, uh, the entire thing um, and then uh, pull from that uh, what it is we should apply to our lives for this story between Jesus and And his disciples um but i just want you to know we're going to be in the classroom for a little bit we got to lay some theological groundwork for the whole thing before we uh we get to uh get to the scripture but before we get there i want to take you back to the year 2000 okay everybody remember the year 2000 think about maybe how old you were in the year 2000 that's 23 years ago i know some of you are like i was negative years old congratulations but year 2000 for me in the year 2000 i was going to Atwater high school Um, And uh, I would have been a sophomore. And in the year 2000, they implemented a school-wide book reading program called SSR. Has anybody heard of SSR? Sustained Silent Reading, right? Anybody have to do that? Yeah, the principal racer, yeah, of course. Okay. But yeah, SSR. And SSR for high schoolers went about as well as you would assume as SSR would go. So what would normally happen is we would open up a book, set the book down on our desk so the teacher couldn't see what we were doing, and then finish our homework from the night before, right? That was what most, most people would do for sustained silent reading. But I am a rule follower. I hate getting into trouble. It is it is not in my in my DNA. And because of that, I would read a book every single day. I would always have my book with me. It would always just be kind of annoying and a little bit make my backpack look that much bigger and all of that stuff. But the book choice for me was authored by two specific individuals, Jerry B. Jenkins and Tim LaHaye. Okay? Yeah, some of you probably know who Jerry B. Jenkins and Tim LaHaye are. They are authors of what most of us remember to be the Left Behind series that came out in the late 90s and early 2000s. If you don't know what the Left Behind uh, series are um, and then you didn't grow up Uh, in or weren't an adult Christian in the early 2000s because this this was the top of every Christian's fiction reading list is you had to. You had to read the Left Behind series. Left Behind series is so good, and it was a fictional series that helped explain all things and times. Everything that was going to happen, it was like, okay, let's look at the book of Revelation, and we are going to write a fictional narrative based on what we think is going to happen at the uh, at the end of the world, and so it talked about the end of the world. It talked about the rapture. It talked about the antichrist. And the premise of the book uh, was that all believers from Earth got raptured, all believers from Earth got taken up into heaven, and only those who didn't believe in God were still on Earth. Now that that sentence alone, I just want you to be aware, has massive theological implications. Okay, so if you read this book and you're like, "This is exactly how it happens." Maybe, right? So again, just remember it's, it's, it's fiction, okay? But then there's a small group of people who were left on the earth, according to Tim LaHaye and Jerry B. Jenkins, called the remnant of people, these last believers. And these, these people were left to try to endure kind of this, this epic series of events until Jesus comes back in the last book. And I was hooked like I like I would my mom would buy the book she would read it I would take it from her I would read the entire thing and then we would sit there and talk through like okay book of Revelation what does this have to like what does this say and how does this this whole thing lined up like I wanted to know what was going to happen at the end of the world especially if the Bible was talking about it so ever since then I've been very very wary of anyone named Nikolai Carpathia in case you're familiar with those books right he was he was the Antichrist um, and so I'm happy to say we have no one in our church named Nikolai, guys. So, um, but obviously, this this is a work of fiction, right? The Left Behind series was a, was a work of fiction about about the end of the world. But the reality is, is that end times and excitement, like like it, or end times fears and excitement, rather, seem to kind of just reignite in every single generation that people just want to know, like, what's the timeline? What does the Bible say is going to happen? Just last year, I think we had, like, four small groups walk through the book of Revelation, which is fine. It's in the Bible. Read it. But that being said, like, every once in a while, there's just like this, oh, what's going to happen, right? In the late 1990s, The left-behind books kind of caused this renewed fervor about the end of the world. Of course, the year 2000 happened, and everybody thought the end of the world was going to happen because of microchips, right? I remember that, like, turn off all of your appliances, turn off all of your devices, and make sure that your house doesn't blow up or something like that. So everybody thought that was going to be the end of the world. The, The Mayan calendar predicted the end of the world in 2012, right? Everybody was like, okay... Okay, it's 2013. We made it. We we made it. And to be fair, the Mayans calendar just ended in 2012. It was never predicted to be the end of the world. But what happens? You can't flip a page anyway. Uh, so the Mayans—that's what they thought. The Jehovah's Witnesses proclaimed the end of the world um, a couple times: uh, 1914, 1918, 1940, 1975, the year 2000, when the generation of 1914 passes away. And now in 2033, mark calendar. Their track record seems to be accurate on that. Um, but, uh, but hysteria kind of always seems to be, be centered on when the end of the world is going to come. And so when we look at this passage from Mark chapter 13 today, know that there's some, this is a, this is some apocalyptic prophecy going on here. And this isn't something like if you're new with us today because you're here for baptisms or whatever, like this is not something that we are normally hard pushing into. But as we walk through the book of Mark, we need to recognize that Jesus indeed, deed, Jesus indeed, t, indeed taught on these, those are hard words, on these things. And so because of that, we have a responsibility as a church to be able to walk, walk, uh, walk through them. And so oftentimes these predictions, they come from Mark chapter 13. There's a parallel passage in Matthew chapter 4 and Luke chapter 21. So it's the same type of story. And we're going to kind of carefully read this chapter and look through what Jesus is teaching and what we should understand as followers of Christ. But before we get that, one more thing. I just want to give a classic warning towards anything that, that, that we read that we would say is, say is prophetic, any passage that deals with kind of future events. Okay. Just because something is happening on earth that reminds you of a prophecy does not mean it is currently coming to fruition, okay? And you're going to see that specifically to verses 7 and 8 of chapter 13. But everything that we do, everything that we say, everything that we encounter needs to be continued to be viewed through the lens of Scripture. Remember, we read Scripture and pull from that practical application for our lives. We never assume practical application and then find verses of Scripture to be able to back that up. There's two theological terms for that. Okay? The first theological term, for all of you note-takers, feel free to write this down. The first theological term is exegesis. Okay? Exegesis. And exegesis is kind of the, the critical explanation, the interpretation of a text, especially of, of Scripture. Put simply, it's a process of discovering the original and intended meaning of a passage of Scripture. That's our goal here at FBH is that we would exegete passage as well. So we would look at a passage, understand what that passage means in the context of what is happening at the time, and then pull meaning from that, which is how our worldview should be shaped. That is an actu- an accurate way to interpret Scripture. There is, a, there is an improper way to interpret Scripture, though, as well. It's something called eisegesis, okay? Eisegesis. So eisegesis is largely, it's, it's, it's an interpretation, especially of Scripture, that expresses the interpreter's own ideas, a bias, or the like, rather than the meaning of the text, So what this is saying is, I'm going to start with my own worldview. I'm going to start with my own understanding of everything. Forget the Bible for a second. I'm going to start with my own understanding of something. And then I'm going to find passages in the Bible that then affirm that. Okay, oftentimes this this happens um, with political parties, right? I have a worldview, so whether I'm a Democrat or a Republican, whatever it may be, and so because of that worldview, I'm going to find pieces of Scripture that then solidify in my head that worldview rather than starting with Scripture, reading what the Bible has to say, and then applying or then then creating a worldview from Scripture. So at FBH, we're all about exegesis. That's what we want to do. We want to discover the original meaning of a text, and then create our worldview and understanding of the text based on that. That's why we spend so much time walking through books of the Bible, is we want to be tied to a text. We don't want to just be like, oh, we're going to do something, something topical today, and then I'm going to just pick and choose whatever scripture it is that I want to then apply to my life. So when it comes to end-time prophecy, getting to Mark 13 now, when it comes to end times prophecy, we want to be especially careful to exegete this passage and not eisegete this passage. Okay, so as we look at that, we need to understand that most theologians in Mark chapter 13, go ahead and flip open there, in Mark chapter 13, most theologians call this the, quote, little apocalypse. That's kind of fun. It's like a cute, just a cute little apocalypse they got going on there, right? But it's the the little apocalypse, and mostly because it doesn't go into a ton of, like a ton of explanation about the end times or anything like that, like Revelation does. Okay, this is more on par with, like, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 has some kind of mirror images in it. But the writing of this little apocalypse seems to largely deal with four different warnings that Jesus is trying to give Christians. And so, what we're going to do is we're going to walk through the whole thing, recognize this is end times literature, and recognize the warnings that Jesus has for his church. And so, the first danger is a warning of the reliance of outward symbols of religion, okay? We're going to see that starting in verses one and two. It says, as Jesus was leaving the temples... One of the, or the temple rather, one of his disciples said to him, look, teacher, what massive stones, what magnificent buildings. He's talking about the temple. Do you see all the great buildings, replied Jesus. Not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. Yeah, even if we love religious symbols, even if we love outward symbols of our faith or different things like that, it's like like we think it's tradition or sacred or whatever. At the end of the day, these symbols are simply just symbols, right? This disciple here in verses one and two is incredibly impressed by the temple at this point in the story, okay? This is the beginning of the rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem, and to be fair, the temple in those buildings, they would have been impressive. They would have kind of been, been massive. But there's a ring of almost kind of patriotic pride in the words of, uh, of this disciple here. Okay. And the issue becomes is this temple was probably built by a guy by the name of Herod not Herod himself but during like Herod's people are building this building Herod if you've been kind of traveling along with us over the last couple of weeks Herod represents Rome Herod represents a people group who has largely taken over where the Jews would call their homeland and so because of that the Jews don't like Herod and beyond that Herod has declared himself the supreme leader of the church as well. So the Jews should not get along with this guy. The Jews should not like this guy. And all of a sudden we have Herod employing people to build a temple for the Jews. Red flags should be going off in people who are Jewish's heads at this, at this point. Okay. So the temple is, though, probably going to be one of the architectural wonders of the Roman world. It gets destroyed before it's ever finished later on, you can read in that. But it was well built, probably help of, the, of, of Roman engineers. But beyond the temple, Herodian masonry, like masonry at that time period, is loved for, for its excellence and is loved everywhere in Palestine at the time. But, but as we read this, there's almost a sadness kind of in the reply of Jesus. There's excitement from the disciple, right? And then there's kind of a sadness with, uh, with Jesus because nothing in all of Jerusalem is going to match the temple for splendor and supposed permanence, right? Jesus was here preparing his disciples for the day when, when every familiar and outward religious symbol is going to be wiped off the face of the earth. When nothing that they think, nothing that they think is holy or sacred or anything like that is even going to be, even going to be around anymore. And so beyond that, what is going to happen in, you know, a couple years after Jesus dies and and is raised from the dead is that the Jews are going to expel the Christians from the Jewish faith. Right? And so these same Jews right here who are like, yes, I'm a Christ follower, I'm a Christian, the other Jews are going to be like, no, you're not, you're a Christian, you're on your own now, you cannot be part of our synagogues, you cannot be part of our temples, you cannot be part of anything like that. And so all the while, this guy's like, look at our temple, look at how great this entire thing looks. But like I said, the whole thing gets destroyed and um, gets, uh, gets sacked and burned with almost like a death blow to Judaism. And this would have been... Would have been great evidential value to the Christian church because Jesus at this point is saying, like, hey, look, this entire thing is gonna get destroyed, and a couple years later, the entire thing gets gets destroyed. So after that, there's there's very little danger of these Jews, these Jewish Christians, going back to the outward forms of Judaism because there was nothing to go back to, right? No sacrifice has been offered in Israel since then. How could there be a sacrifice? There's no temple, right? So there's no temptation for the disciples to return back to this place. So that's the first warning, okay? The second warning that we have is in Mark 13, verses 5, 5, and 6. It says, Jesus said to them, watch out that no one deceives you. Many will come in my name claiming I am he. I will deceive many. So as a sign of the times, Jesus kind of gives, Jesus gives a second warning at this point against false spiritual teachers, It's false spiritual leaders, rather. Whether or not they call themselves the actual name of Jesus, here I think Jesus is actually talking about two distinct groups of people. I think he's talking about people who are literally going to come and call themselves Jesus, say that they are indeed the Messiah that actually happens in the first century after Jesus and the disciples passed away. It's called the end of the apostolic era, era. That people come, there's a dude specifically who comes named Bar Kokhba, who says, I am the Messiah, I am Jesus who has returned, I am Jesus reincarnated, it's a great reading if you want a good time, Um, but he comes back and he claimed full Messiahship, he said he was Jesus, all 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 of those things, but I also think in a wider sense and something we should be aware of is the idea that there are going to be a whole lot of false teachers who teach false things about Jesus and because of that lead people towards worshiping a false Christ and that's where we need to be more concerned is worshiping a version of Jesus that isn't true. By whatever name they end up calling him, his warning is that Jesus' disciples should not be led astray at this point. Okay? And this happens almost immediately after the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Okay? So again, stay with me. We're in the classroom. I see some of you getting glazed over. Okay? Stay with me here. But this happens almost immediately after the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. There's an entire new wave of believers who come in, and they're like, yeah, we believe in Jesus, but there's also this thing that we're going to call Gnosticism. Okay? It's this idea of a Gnostic heresy, Gnostic, silent G. It's like pneumonia or pterodactyl, but with a G. Um, and there's this entire new wave. And essentially what they're saying is they are teaching that believers, specifically believers in Jesus, have access to a secret type of knowledge that can be achieved by transcendence through spiritual intuition. You're like, okay, let me make this whole Jesus thing more sim- more, like, like a lot more simple for you. And that you can now transcend other people's knowledge because of your own personal intuition which if you're kind of looking at kind of New Age spirituality and different things that we're dealing with now, it's the same thing in different clothing, okay? This idea that there is a secret kind of knowledge that we can, like that we are able to access. This happens almost immediately after the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, right? And the this, this scary thing here is is that what this means is, is that people's emotions, people's feelings, like their centering of themselves can now transcend the teaching of Jesus and the teaching of scripture. That's the concern, is that if I, can, if I can just have an interaction with the Holy Spirit, I can just have an interaction with Jesus, then that is ultimately going to Trump. Well, I heard Jesus say this to me or heard the Holy Spirit say this to me. We still have people today who are claiming to be the voice of God. Right? We claim that even their encounters with Jesus are more important than what, what maybe Scripture teaches, and that is a dangerous place to be, a place where our own thoughts and our own feelings about Jesus trump what the Bible says or about him, about what he teaches. That is a dangerous, dangerous place to be. I never want my feelings to be the basis of my doctrine. I never want my feelings to be the basis of what I believe. And if our feelings are the basis of our doctrine, then anything goes at that point. You never have to measure it against anything. You can believe whatever it is that you want to believe. You can say whatever it is that you want to say. Why? Because I feel this way, and I'm my own personal God, and I can transcend what the Bible says because I, I, have, I have this pathway to Jesus that nobody else has. And that's a very, very concerning place to be. But let's keep moving. So broadly, then, there's a crop of false teachers that are going to be a sign of the end of times as will kind of a steady worsening of a political world situation, okay? Which we've never seen that ever before, right? So... But this introduces a third danger, and this introduces a third warning to us, that we must not be alarmed over international crises. We shouldn't be. As the non-Christian may be alarmed, the Christian's heart must not be troubled. John 14 actually talks about that, for these troubles are a necessary stage. This is what it says in verses 7 and 8. It says, when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places and famines. These are the beginning of birth pains. Okay, so this is where we need to be careful about establishing some sort of timeline that we're like, okay, well, these things, there are wars currently happening. There are kingdoms fighting kingdoms. There are earthquakes happening. There are famines happening. We think to ourselves, this must be a sign of end time. So the reality is, yeah, probably, okay? And what is Jesus' warning here? Like, hey, just, just don't be alarmed. It's going to happen. And then beyond that, he says, this is the beginning of birth pains. Raise your hand if you've given birth in here. Any, any birth givers in here? Congratulations, okay? Okay. Um, Raise your hand if you stood next to your wife and supported them as they walked through birth. Good. Yeah, guys, there were more enthusiastic hand raises on the guy's side. You're like, yeah, I was there. I was there. We were pregnant. No, you weren't. She was pregnant. Um, That being said, I know, like, I was in the room with my wife, right, and I walked through labor with my wife and all that stuff. And I know for a fact that the beginning of birth pains are actually a whole lot easier than the end of birth pains, Right? So when Jesus says, <laughs> amen, so, so when Jesus says this is the beginning of birth pains, what does that mean? It means it's going to continue to get worse. It means it's going to continue to get harder and harder. And Jesus says this is just simply, simply the beginning, right? When Russia invaded Ukraine... February 24th, 2022. The only reason I remember it is because it's my stepdad's birthday. Hey, February 24th, 2022. I was like, what is happening? Are we on the brink of World War III? What is happening right now? And I was at the happiest place on earth. I I was on vacation with my family in Disneyland, right? And I thought to myself, Man, this is either the best place to be or the worst place to be when World War III goes down. I'm not sure which. But I was just completely and totally distracted by the fact that all of these other things, like these wars were happening, like all of this terrible stuff was going to happen. Is Putin the Antichrist? Like all of these different things that are running through my head at the time. And really, I should be sitting here looking at verses 7 and 8 where it says, hey, don't be alarmed. This is going to happen. This is par for the course. These birth pains are going to happen, but Jesus is like, look, this is going to be crazy. These birth pains are going to be crazy, but this is just the beginning. This is nothing compared to what you're going to have to endure, so what do we have to endure? Verses 9 through 11. This is what it says. You must be on your guard. You will be handed over to local councils and flogged in the synagogues. Hey, if you're new to church, welcome for the first time, um, On account of me, you will stand before governors and kings as witnesses to them. And the gospel must first be preached to all nations. That's prophecy. Gospel has to be preached to all nations before Jesus comes back. Verse 11, whenever you are arrested and brought to trial, do not worry beforehand about what to say. Just say whatever is given you at the time, for it is not you speaking, but the Holy Spirit. So this is Jesus' fourth warning in the passage. He warns them, be on your guard. Be on your guard. Stuff is going to go down. Be ready because you're going to be handed over to the government. You're going to be flogged in places where you assume that you would be safe. And because of professing the name of Jesus, you will give an account to those people in power. But don't worry about the account that you're going to have to give to the people in power. The Holy Spirit is going to show up and he's going to speak for you. So don't go home and open up a Word document. Holy Spirit's got your back. And Jesus' monologue goes on from there. He continues after verse, after verse 11 over and over and over again. He talks about siblings hating each other. He talks about parents hating their kids. He talks about something called the abomination that causes desolation in verse 14. You want to get into a theological argument with somebody? Try to figure out that phrase in verse 14. He talks about false prophets. prophets. He talks about people who show signs and wonders to throw you off. I mean, it goes on and on and on. And some people just salivate over this. That I want to know was it? like, give me, give me a timeline about all of this. So here's the question for today. Why then does any of this matter to us? Why does Mark chapter 13 matter to us? And even as I was talking through some of this, some of you read beyond what I talked about, which is fine. You're trying to figure out the passage. Can I say, please read the passage? It's in the Bible, it's scripture. Read the passage. Try to figure out, try to figure out that, that passage. Try to dissect it, but don't dissect it and try to understand it for the sake of a timeline. Right? We should be reading towards the end of time and reading towards the end of even the apostolic age in the same way that Jesus warns his disciples. It's not so they can know what happens and when it is going to happen and speculate about how it is that's going to go down and is, is it really going to be a guy named Nikolai Carpathia. Who knows? We should be reading this passage and take warning to make sure we are ready when this does go down. Not tell me what it is that is going to happen, whether it's the end of the world or not. What do I mean by that? I mean, Jesus warns them not to rely on religious symbols or traditions like the building they meet in. Okay, this was pressed hard. I'm not trying to get political, but this was pressed hard when we went through COVID together. It was a harsh reminder to us that the church does not consist of a property. The church consists of a people. And that was, like, that was like the tagline for every pastor, right? Like, no, this is a good reminder for us that we are the fellowship of believers. Fellowship in the Greek is the word koinonia. So you've heard of koinonia church? That's what that means, the fellowship of believers. And so when we say, hey, let's go to church, that's not the same Greek word koinonia. That's actually a German word. That German word is kersha or something like that. I don't speak German. But the German word was introduced as church thousands of years after that Greek word koinonia was, so the same way we use it, like wash your face before we, before we go to church, hurry up, find your shoes, we're going to be late for church, right? All of those different things, that's the German word that we're talking about. That's a physical building, that's a location, when in reality, Jesus is talking about here koinonia, fellowship of believers, and so when, when, when the opportunity to meet in building spaces like this or, or sacred symbols or traditions or anything like that get destroyed, no, hey, Jesus said this was going to happen. It should not shake your faith. This should actually solidify your faith. And so the second warning then is back to false teachers, right? Let's look back at it, back to false teachers. If you're listening to a pastor or a preacher who is a famous pastor or preacher, you listen to your podcast, whatever it is that you're, you're listening to, and that pastor's not exegeting Scripture. He's not looking at Scripture and, and, and giving you context for what's happening at the time and allowing to you to read and understand through uh, the lens of which it was written. Be careful. Jesus warns about it. He said, hey, they're coming. False teachers are coming. And we do our best to provide context for what's going down in all of these areas. We don't teach about anything that's contrary to Scripture. And beyond that, we do most of our preaching through books of the Bible to make sure we're not just like picking and choosing, like I said before, So when you listen to pastors and preachers and teachers, are they teaching an accurate representation of what the Bible says, or they're spending their own narrative for clicks? Are they spending their own narrative for more money, whatever it may be? Be careful. And then Jesus' third warning is about wars and natural disasters. So again, as we read through all of this, this isn't timeline stuff that we should be establishing. This is Jesus saying, "Hey, be warned! This is going to happen." He says, "Be on your guard. Reg- be on your guard regarding those things." He didn't say anything else. He's just like, "Hey, be, be on guard! G- these things are are going to happen." But more importantly, he says it's the beginning of it, and none of it should surprise you. None of this should surprise us. If you're shocked every time something crazy happens in the world, like, I don't know, the U.S. shooting down multiple spy balloons, like, if you're shocked by that, you probably shouldn't be, because Jesus is like, hey, these things are going to happen. Like, if you think we're on our way into World War III and you're shocked by that, don't be. Jesus is like, hey, this is the beginning of birth pains. These things are going to happen. I'm not saying it's imminent. I'm not saying it's tomorrow. It could be. I don't know. But we shouldn't be surprised by these things or you are surprised by the fact that there's a massive earthquake in Syria and over 30,000, I mean, projections are over 40,000 people at the end of this entire thing are going to be passed away. And you're shocked by that. You shouldn't be. Jesus talks about it right here, and, and our natural inclination tends to be like, Jesus, how like God, how could you allow something like this to happen? And it kind of shakes our faith a little bit. And we're like, man, God, I thought you were a God of love. I thought you were a good God. And all the while, Jesus is here in Mark 13, and he's like, if you just read my word, you would know these things are going to happen. This shouldn't shake your faith. This shouldn't embolden your faith. Why? Because Jesus already predicted it. All of these things are going to happen. So our faith should be solidified when we see the world going to hell. Don't be surprised by it. Recognize Jesus said it was going to happen in the first place. And then lastly, Jesus says things are going to be terrible for believers. This is like the worst altar call in the world. But Jesus says things are going to be terrible for believers. He is. And this is largely where I want to land today. This is what I want us to understand today. Most of us have probably grown up in a world where it's relatively easy to follow Jesus. Right? When I was growing up, I, I remember meeting meeting someone for the first time who did not go to church. I was like, what church do you go to? He was like, oh, we don't go to church. I was like, what? You can do that? <laughs> like, I didn't even know that was a thing, right? Like, it was a long time before, before I met anybody who didn't go to church, and even if they didn't go to church, they always believed in God, right? They're like, where do you go to church? Well, I don't go to church, but I do believe in God. I'm like, okay, cool. I guess that's a thing now, too. But if, but, but if you're here today, I just, like, like, I just want you to know that we have, we have made it so simple to follow Jesus, like so easy to follow Jesus. We make that profession of faith. We're going to pray the ABCs at the end of this thing like we do every single service. But I think we've made it so simple to follow Jesus as the Savior of our lives that we have forgotten largely about the fact that Jesus should also be Lord of our lives. And there's a distinction there between Jesus and Lord, a very, very important distinction between Jesus as Lord. And oftentimes we talk about uh, uh, Jesus as Savior Oftentimes we do, right? At the end of every single service, like I said, we talk about Jesus as Savior. And I want you to understand, making a profession of faith, like that is a very, very, very good thing. It is the best decision that you could possibly make in your life. The Bible actually says in Romans that the wages of sin is death. So what does that mean? That means that if you have sinned, and if you're in here and you have a heartbeat, you have sinned, okay? Then that means that the wages of those sin is death, both spiritual and physical, meaning Hell. That's the wages of sin, that's what scripture says the wages of sin is, is death, spiritual and physical death. However, Jesus then comes onto the scene as we're talking to him about right here in Mark chapter 13. Jesus comes onto the scene and he says, you know what? I'm going to go to the cross on your behalf. I'm going to take those wages, I'm gonna take that sin upon me so God's wrath can be justified because God is perfectly wrathful, he's perfectly loving, he's perfectly just, all of those things. And so God's wrath can then be justified Not upon the believer, not upon the sinner, but rather upon Jesus. He stepped in to take that burden so we could be with the Godhead forever. It's good news. We get spared hell because Jesus endured God's wrath for us. The catch is, is that oftentimes people make a decision to follow Jesus without considering the responsibility that comes along with it. Right, even right now we've got we've got a whole bunch of of high school students up at Hume and they're doing the winter camp thing and it snowed yesterday and apparently Pastor Brian has a video of, of him riding a mechanical bull while he's up there or something like that, right? They're having a blast. Okay, but that being said, there are students up there who are going to make a profession of faith. They're gonna they're gonna say, Yes, like, I want to follow Jesus as Lord of my life. And maybe it's not for the first time, maybe they're re upping and they're recommitting their life to Christ. But I also know that as they are making that decision for Jesus, there are some of them who are in there who are not understanding the responsibility that comes along with it. Anybody make a poor decision once COVID hit? Okay, oh, it's just, No, just me. We got two dogs when COVID hit. Terrible decision. Okay, Terrible decision because we're like, oh, we're by ourselves. we got a whole bunch of time on our hands. Let's buy a dog. So we bought one dog. And then that dog hated me. So I was like, let's buy a dog who will like me. And that dog doesn't like anybody, really. He just wants to lay in the dirt all the time. And so we got these two dogs. Then we moved. And then we found a cat who was outside starving to death. So we did the worst thing you can do, which was feed it. And so now we inherited a third cat. And then we were here a couple months ago, six months ago or so. And we saw a cat, a little baby tiny kitten, like three days old, whose mom had abandoned it. And it was just like meowing and meowing and meowing. And I was like, no, I'm not going to. And then it just kept meowing. So then I took that cat home. And now we have a zoo right? And so because of that, because of that, we now have made decisions that now have responsibility on us because of those decisions, right? Like, we, we have ramifications in our lives because of the decisions that we've made. And the reality is, is that we need to recognize when we make a decision to follow Jesus, we now have responsibility in our lives regarding that decision specifically, and oftentimes, we just kind of glaze over the reminder that Jesus should not just become our Savior, but, but, but Jesus, as we do our best to become more like him, should become Lord of our life as well. And that distinction between Savior and Lord is a real one. And Jesus is our Savior is the one we talk about a lot. Put your faith in him and allow the Holy Spirit to come up and take in residence of your life, right, to come and live in your heart. So when you pass away, you get the opportunity to be in the presence of God forever, That's the goal. That's the hope. And that's great news. That is great, great news. But we should also continue to make him Lord of our lives. Meaning whatever he asks of you, whatever is commanded of you, whether it be in Scripture or the Spirit moving in your heart, we do it. Right? Let me contrast the two for you real quick, and we'll land with this. Okay? Jesus is Savior kind of emphasizes sins being forgiven. That's important. Jesus as Lord, though, emphasizes kind of a reorientation of your life, which includes sins forgiven. I'm no longer the king of my own domain. Jesus is. This reorientation changes everything about you. And that's the difference between Savior and Lord. Jesus as Savior impacts me personally. When I read Jesus, come be the Savior of my life. Like, come take up residence in my life. Jesus as Lord, though, however, impacts me and everyone around me. It's communal because it's reorienting your life. Jesus' Savior is often kind of deeply personalistic and very, very privatized. Jesus' Lord kind of it it retains the personal dynamic but spreads out to impact everything and everybody else around me. It lays at the center of life. It's mission-oriented. Jesus' savior only affects the kind of so-called spiritual aspects of my life. Going to church be there on Wednesday night, be in a small group, get baptized. Like That's the the spiritual aspects of life. Jesus as Lord affects all of life, holistic, all-encompassing. It's not limited to Sunday or or a midweek program or just the, the general religious side of life. It's the center of our life. And when you bend the knee, and submit to Jesus, and oftentimes we hear, I will never bend the knee. No, when you bend the knee and submit to Jesus as Lord, you are gaining the responsibility that comes with it. What is the responsibility that comes with it? Mark chapter 13. That's the responsibility that comes with it. That means our responsibility is to be ready. It's not to establish a prophetic timeline. It's to know that these things are coming, and our responsibility is to be aware Our responsibility is to keep Jesus Lord of our lives for as long as we have breath in our lungs and as far as it depends on us. That Jesus isn't only Savior, but he is Lord as well. I mean, can we just imagine maybe what the church would look like if the church stopped merely talking about Jesus as the Savior and maybe began to profess Jesus as Lord of our lives? That's how we get from Sunday worship to our entire life as worship to God. Our individual lives would be impacted. The church as a whole would be impacted. I think in an effort to make salvation easy, we've forgotten how difficult it is to make Jesus Lord. And I think all of us need to take a look in the mirror. If you have, yet, if you have said yes to Jesus, to see, did I say yes to Jesus as Savior? Or did I say yes to him as Lord as well? So today as we go from this place, I, I, I want to encourage you to be like these people who got baptized earlier today. And none of them are perfect, and they'll tell you that. They'll say, I'm a sinner in need of a Savior, and Jesus took care of my sins and all of that stuff. But one of the things these people did is they took that step of faith, saying, I love Jesus, and I'm going to show everybody in my world, my community, I'm going to allow people, I'm going to invite people to come and see the fact that I am putting a flag in the sand and that Jesus not only is a Savior of my life, but he is the Lord of my life as well. Amen? Let's pray, church. Heavenly Father, God, thank you for... Thank you for your son. Thank you for these baptisms, God, and just, just life and, and the symbolism of that renewal of what you did on the cross for us as we recognize that the wages of sin is indeed death. But you went to the cross on, on our behalf. So, Father, we thank you for that. We don't just thank you for that as Savior of our life, God. We recognize that, that it is now our responsibility to, to make you Lord of our lives as well. So, God, I pray you would be Lord of my life. In those areas where I still try to take control, those areas where I still try to white-knuckle everything, God, that I would be willing to let those go and say, Father, thank you. Be Lord of my life. In every aspect. And so if you're new, to, new here today or maybe you've have never said yes to Jesus with heads still bowed and eyes still closed, if that's you, if you're like, you know what, I want to make Jesus both Savior and Lord of my life, I'm gonna give you an opportunity here to make a profession of faith. And a profession of faith is simply saying that I'm recognizing I'm a sinner, that Jesus died on a cross for me, and I'm gonna to choose to follow him for the rest of my life. So it's that, if that's you this morning, you can just quietly, in the quietness of your heart, simply pray along with me and say, Father, A, I admit, That I'm a sinner in need of a savior. And I recognize that the wages of sin is death. And I repent of that sin. But B, I believe you sent your son to die on a cross for my sake. To take on God's wrath. So I wouldn't have to. I believe that. And I believe he rose again, that he conquered that death. And see, I would choose to follow him every single day of my life as I do my best to become more holy, to become more like him, to become more sanctified. Father, God, that Jesus would be Lord of my life. We love you. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.